Uh, our podcast is presented by TechGC. Uh, if you want information on membership, uh, look down below in the notes. And uh, one awesome thing that's happening June 23rd, the TechGC Privacy Summit, which uh, I've been a part of a couple times before, what actually afforded me the opportunity to ring the bell at the New York Stock Exchange. I chaired the privacy track. So maybe it wasn't the exact same thing, but it was a privacy-focused um, event uh, from TechGC. They always do a great job of those things. And the, the lineup, honestly, dude, is stacked. The people that are talking at that, it's a sick lineup. It's like Julia Shulman, yeah, Thomas Chow. I mean, I, I could I could pull up the list, but it's a ton of uh, Stephanie King, like pros, pros at that at that summit. A lot of gurus. Uh, and I'm really happy it's on June 23rd because it helps me forget that that's the day I met my ex-wife. So I'm super pumped about this. Yeah. Forget forget that that happened and just talk privacy. There's ton to talk about, Pri like federal privacy rules. My ex-wife is a very nice lady. Yeah. She's a very nice lady. I'm just kidding. Yeah, absolutely. Here we are. All right. We're Time here. Time to shame my internet. <laughs> Uh, I had I, so you I got have, it, so you upgraded it you upgraded it I upgraded I also have a mesh network because I'm in my attic in the house yeah I'm in my attic okay and the mesh network needs to pull Wi-Fi signal from you know really down to the basement where the system is anchored so it's it's that could be the issue but as interesting as that is um, you know, maybe we could revisit some <laughs> well, yeah. different topics. But well, I'm just gonna say your mesh network is terrible. Yeah, what I see now is like a pixelated version of you, where your plant looks like you got hair. It struggles. <laughs> it struggles. Uh, yeah, well, yeah. Let, you know, I really like. It's funny when, when, when but when, when you're up here in this new little cubby of yours, the <laughs> the the Stranger Things uh, dungeon, um, the light glare moves from podcast to podcast. So I don't mm. know. Are you moving the lamp around, Andy? Is no. that keeping me on my toes? No, but I'm I'm. I've got a you know very fancy setup here, so uh, it's like right, a Hollywood right. set. We'll see, look, it's like, so quickly, quickly. I want to you know for the folks that don't know, you went on a three week cross country motorcycle ride. So like, yeah, I haven't caught weeks. up with you since yeah. then. So I want to hear a little bit about what happened, and, and honestly, like, what did that do for your sort of like mental energy? You know, yeah, that's a good question. So yeah, I did do that. I uh, rode from here to Charleston on a Triumph Street Scrambler and um, started the trek there on the on the bay in Charleston, and then rode across sort of like the Southern Path all the way to uh, Los Angeles. It took a you know two and a half weeks or so, um, and I took the scenic route. You know, so it was like rainy the first couple of days, mountainous the next couple of days, extremely hot and windy most of the rest of the way. Yeah. Um. So caught all all the elements were pretty good, and um, look, it was a blast. Now, your question about mental like effect and impact. You know, it was one of those like uh, reset activities which I need, man. Like I'm a pretty intense person, as you know, and like as everybody that knows me knows, and like just being able to decompress some of the pressure that builds when you're constantly giving as much energy as you can to multiple things and toggling between difficult life situations and difficult work situations is important to me. And so being on the bike, I can't check email. I can't zoom. I can't text. I can't check the news. 
I can't pick up the phone if it rings. I'm just riding 12 hours a day through the elements. And, uh, you know, uh, it, I really was, you know, on the moon from a mm -hmm. connectivity standpoint. And mm -hmm. it was incredible in that yeah. way. And what does it allow me to do? Look, it allows me to think about the last couple of years of COVID and try to interpret like how that affected me and being intellectually and emotionally honest with myself about what it means to be in isolation for two years when you don't have family and kids and stuff like that. Um, and then I think the other piece was, you know, I'm coming on two years at Meta and like, I just wanted to think about what that means to me. And like, have I been meeting the goals I set out and wrote about on LinkedIn when I first joined? And, um, you know, to the first question, I think I came to some good conclusions about like, sort of like what I want to spend the next 10 years of my life doing and, uh, you know, in a personal life kind of way. And then from a professional standpoint, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to report that I, I sort of like have doubled down on the mission that I set out for myself when I joined here, which is to try to create, you know, meaningful privacy and fairness change for the billions of people that rely on our networks, right? Like that, that's why I came here, man. I love and, it. And on our platforms, I'm sorry. And like, I'm doing that work. It's hard to mm -hmm. feel like you're doing that work when you're in a tactical decision about first party versus third party data. Like, it's hard to be like, oh yeah, I'm saving people. No, but when you zoom out and you look at the like portfolio of uh, work streams, I still see the right trajectory, right? On like impact and and fo um, focus on specific goals. So, um, you know, I'm reinvigorated from a work sense and excited to be back. I'm glad I didn't get hurt on the trip. And then, uh, you know, in a personal life context, I um, maybe will be doing less like super isolated travel things going forward and try to bring some friends along. But other did than you, that, it's all Did good, you have man. any reflections about America? I mean, so for, for me personally, like at at this point in time, I'll just say it here. It's tough to be a fan of America for me right now. Like I, I, I'm yeah. struggling with America right now in a lot of ways. And so I'm yeah. wondering, like, as you rode across a segment, you know, of America, like, do you have any thoughts about, yeah. about that? Yeah. You know, I was on the road when Uvalde happened um, yeah. and I was at the very end. So it kind of ruined my like celebration vibe. Uh, you know, our country's in a tough place, Andy. Uh, you know, we, 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 there, there's a lot of challenges, political, social, economic, all happening at once. Um, and it's like sort of applying pressure at the fabric of what it is to be American and what that means. Um, and uh, it's tricky. I did think about it. I do have an appreciation and I always have had because I've lived in places like Mississippi and North Carolina and I live in Georgia um, for points of views that I don't share. Mm -hmm. I think it's very easy to be like, you guys are wrong and stupid and I'm right. And you guys are just not evolved from either perspective. Okay. From, from e either perspective. And I just don't think that that's a healthy approach to have a conversation or have a relationship, whatever that's going to be with your countrymen to use an old term. Right. Mm. And so, um, I think we need to elevate like the dialogue that's hard to do with cable news and garbage on the internet, but we should try. And instead of trying to convince each other that we're right, try to understand where each other is coming from is a direction that we need to take. We're going to need leadership to do that. And I don't know that that's going to happen anytime soon. So I'm skeptical, but we'll see. I will reflect more on this because I'm headed to Portugal next week and Spain. And when I'm out of the country is when I really can think clearly about what it means to be here. 
And so I'll report back on the next episode. I love it. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Uh, having that time to reflect is really, really important. Uh, it is a tough yeah, time. For sure, right man. Now. For sure. And also a privacy bill was introduced right when I got back and, you yep. know, federal privacy bill, which I, you know, we'll see how that goes. Um, I'm not optimistic. I mean, I think it's interesting substantive exercise in the sense of like, there are some uh, parts to the text that I think are unique and not explored by other rules and laws. And, and, and it just from a wonky standpoint, like, I think it's cool to see some proposed text that uh, has some original creativity in it, you know, for better or worse. You know, as insofar as whether we'll get a bill passed into law, I don't think too early. To what's in the text yeah. now is well. I I don't think what's in the text now is 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 a, it, it stands a chance. But I think the text is a cool starting point for the discussion. Yeah, let's hope that it's viewed that way because um, yeah, yeah, it's not the number one priority in my mind for the USA. But uh, if it happens, no, no, you know, it obviously, definitely isn't be helpful. Um, all right, well. Definitely. In term in terms of our our guest today, uh, one of our favorites, Danielle Shear, CLO yep. at Commvault, um, awesome, awesome GC and leader. So excited about that combo for sure. Yeah, well, you know what's interesting about her to me is that she has very strong opinions, um, and they're rooted in what is obviously, you know deep reflection and meditation like yeah. you know she's not a trivial opinion trivially opinionated person um and i think the world needs more of those just just to be honest like every, our profession we're, we're going to talk about this during, yeah 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 like our profession is a little like it's it's strange to me because like lawyers specifically have like this reputation for being dirtbags and like rude and like intellectually elitist and snobs and all of that is true and at the same time while we do our jobs we're highly political and diplomatic and shy away from the hard decisions sometimes and it's just like man like i, I some if we could collapse those two into one you probably get somebody like danielle which is she's got strong opinions and she doesn't back down from them but she's not a dirtbag and like we need that in our profession. We need that in policy. We need straight talk. We need plain English. We need clear, crisp ideas versus all of this opacity that I see everywhere that is getting us nowhere. It's keeping a lot of people employed, but solving nothing. Yeah. And your point about America and listening to other points of view is apropos here, too. You got like yeah. that's another uh, a thing about people like Danielle. I think you and I are in this group too. We have opinions. You have a point of view. You have a take, but you have to leave room for another one. And that and that's got to no be question. the way you operate. No question. That's been a learning. That's been a learning area for me too. Me I too. Because I have a lot of conviction when I develop an opinion, and I can come across as like I think it's this or nothing. And sometimes I do think that, by the way, <laughs> um, and that's okay too. But if that's the majority of your uh, way of expressing your thoughts and ideas then you're just kind of an arrogant. I agree. Like like, the delivery, it's so nuanced. The you can have a really strong opinion about something. Even the delivery needs to be, you know, instead of, well, it's this way or I quit. Like that's not a good way to deliver. (laughs) (laughs) And I've seen that. Andy, Andy just described all of our production meetings. when I speak up. (laughs) Uh, All right. With that said, here's the app with Danielle. All right, let's do it, man. (laughs) Our guest today is Danielle Shear, the chief legal officer at Commvault. And right before we clicked record, you said, "Is why is my head so big? It's not going to be that big on the screen. 
uh, you know, just just so you know, and and uh, and this is a podcast, so um, we only use the clips to uh, advertise. So even better, yeah. I love your. Well, I know people can't see it, but like your office setup is amazing. It's like oh, thanks. I spend a lot for- of time. It's in like sail. Do you? It's like sailboat in a rainforest vibes. Like that's what I'm getting. <laughs> <laughs> it's cool. Well, so like it's cool. we can get into legal stuff in a minute, but. Aren't you like you take design pretty seriously, right, Danielle? I do, I do. I sort of, um, I think if you want to do, if you want to do well, you got to look well. <laughs> you got to be in an environment that makes you feel good. You yeah. know. Yeah. No wonder I feel like crap all the time. <laughs> <laughs> Pedro, you you paid. I, I work you, in a- you you had a designer right in your house. I did upstairs. Did. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The the rest of my house is pretty nice. Um, down here, I mean, if folks have seen my office in the cliffs. Like, it's just a mishmash of all the things that don't make sense anywhere else in my house, including, I don't know, Daniel, your reaction to my wallpaper here, but it's pretty intense. It's pretty intense. Well, that's awesome. I mean, but it does it does it make you happy? Like, does it inspire you? Um, you know, it's got like evil layer vibes, you know, and so like the, it, I think it works for me. Um, one of the interesting things is, uh, Tupac, who's behind me, that painting, I have a Facebook, uh, a meta now portal, and it has one of these like AI cameras that zooms around. And when I get out of the center of the image, it'll zoom in on Tupac. So I'll be in a conference, like going on and a meeting going on and on about whatever. And it's just like Tupac is on the screen. <laughs> and that's my favorite part of my dungeon. Yeah. <laughs> Tupac. But I love your flowers back there. Tell me they're real. Tell the truth. Are they real? Um, they are not real because <laughs> orchids are really hard to keep alive. They really are because yeah. I work at it so bad and I kill them all. <laughs> um, well, it looks beautiful and uh, it is a really pretty space. I wish everyone, everybody go look at the clip on LinkedIn when we post it because it's really cool. <laughs> Got a nice setup. Uh, well, I'm, I'm excited to be here talking to you where, uh, you know, now now sponsored by tech gc so we we talked to you a while back when that wasn't the case and we have fancy mics and we have yeah and there it is you know i i consider i consider you sort of charter member of tech gc and that's certainly how i met you so uh i'm interested though you know you recently changed roles and so i'm interested in what what drove that you're now the clo of commvault which is a security focus software company so like what what drove you to change and and you know changing is a big deal when we when we're in the places we're at right now at the stage of life we're in so what drove it there are so many different ways to answer that question um i do have an honest answer and i'll get there in just a second but when i get asked this question kind of depending on who asks me you know uh, my last company went private. I like to be at public companies. I like the public company compliance work. Um, it's a legacy software company that's trying to um, uh, pivot to SaaS and growth, and that's super interesting to me. Um, so there's lots of there's lots of good, and it's in data protection space. And you know, I'm obsessed with privacy work, and I think it's great to have a career where it's um, you're selling a product that's in that space. I just think it's a lot of fun. But this time, the truth is, it's my third GC gig. And I've learned so much at, at each one. I was I was looking for my people. 
I was looking for the right team. I, I had a couple of, um, I, I didn't, I was, I was interviewing in another company that was about to go public and it was through a headhunter. Um, and it was New York city based big brand name. And this, they, they were trying to sell me on how impressive the team that they had collected, uh, was, and they were big names from either, you know, um, in the insurance industry or in the banking world from like for a CFO and you know, tech company from a CFO. And on paper, these folks were seriously impressive. And some of the board members have names that you and I would recognize. And it occurred to me as I was going through this process and having the experience that I had, my question was, yeah, but they, can they play together as a team? You, it seemed like they were recruiting rock star individuals but can you, can they be a team together? And um, I was looking for a team. I was looking for a team that liked each other in many ways, were either cut from the same cloth or were aptly paired personality-wise and who understood what the goal was for the company and wanted that goal. In our case, the company has been around for 26 years. There was an activist in the stock, which was the reason for having a new CEO, new management team, and it's and we're in such a terrific space and the technology is so great. The company was on-premise data protection software, and the goal is to make it the leading, and I think it is the only current public technology company that sells data protection software. And we want to turn that into data protection as a service, data management as a service. And I just think that goal is great. So the question for me was, is are these the right people to get it done? And I spent five months talking to them to figure that out. Wow. Are we going to call it deep pass data protection as a service? Deep pass. Deep pass. Yeah. Or DMAS. Like yeah. It. Okay. That's cool. How did you like, how did you determine in a, in a COVID hybrid environment how did you determine? Because this is something we struggle with now. We got rid of our office, like trust on the management team in particular, but really everybody, like trust between everybody, every layer of the company. Pedro, you know this from being highly distributed. How do you, how, like for in an interview process, like how did you get a sense for that? I know you and I know you have like, you think about things more than on a surface level. So like, what did you think about when you assess like, is this the right team? So, um, first of all, I met, I, I flew to where the CEO lives and I met with him in person. I spent several hours with him. Um, and I think first impressions are important. Um, and we, we clicked, but that wasn't enough. You know, I, when, when you're a GC, you want to know whether you have the opportunity to build a relationship with the CEO that when he or she has a question or a problem or is trying to work something out, that you'll be on their short list of people to call. And that, that's a leap of faith. But I wanted to spend some time building the relationship to see if that would be something Sanjay and I would have together. Um, Sanjay's is very similar. Relationships are very important to him. I met with every single member of the board. And when we were near the end, um, I met with most of his management team um, in person. We had a meal together. We had a drink together. Um, so this this. It was a, it was maybe an unusual um, interview experience, but it was right for me because I think at a certain point 
in your journey, you are fortunate enough to get to choose where you want to be. And, and, and maybe that's not always the case, but at this point I had the ability to choose. And, um, and I, I did a lot of hard work and uh, started building those relationships early. And one of the funny things is, is if you work for this particular CEO, Sanjay, everybody does an unpaid internship. So I was actually working for them for a couple of months before I was on the payroll. That's just his thing. Um, and I, I, uh, I get it. So I, I, um, so that, that's how it happened for yeah. me. I met a lot of people. Pedro, how did you do that? You, you left a very, a job you really liked at Salesforce to go to Meta, yeah. which is, you know, obviously one of the biggest companies in the world. So like, you know, that's a big thing. You know, how do I establish trust and make sure it's the right people? Yeah. And, and I came into the interview process skeptically because I hear about the company, what everybody hears out in the world. Right. And so like, um, that skepticism translated into my like hiring and recruiting process. So I had two advantages coming here. Um, I knew Rob Sherman from before and I've known him a long time and, um, and Aaron Egan, these are my, this is my leadership chain. And so that helps quite a bit because I know them both to be honest, high integrity people who, uh, uh want to do the right thing and also really smart. Um, so that helped, but you know, I, I asked for meetings with lots of people. Um, you know, they're like m m Facebook at the time. Now meta had like its interview loop process and they had some folks that they thought I needed to meet with to see if I was a good fit. Well, I had some folks I wanted to meet with to see if we were a good fit. And so I asked for more meetings with different people, I, not, not specifically people by name, but folks in t on teams that I knew I would have to have, uh, interactions with or work closely with. And, um, you know, the company was super, um, flexible in that way and essentially let me meet whoever I wanted to, uh, you know, within reason. And, and I did. And so, uh, you know, assessing like the collective philosophical approach to the work that my team does was made a little bit easier by me having some say in who I met with. And I thought that helped quite a bit. And the company was super transparent, um, about that. I, I'll say when I interviewed at Salesforce, it was also in a distributed way. I, 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 I didn't meet anyone in person, nor did I know anyone at Salesforce at the time that I can think of. So every meeting and interview I had was for the first time, was the first time I met the person who I was meeting with. Um, and I think Salesforce had a good format for like the get to know you part mm -hmm. of meetings uh, that everyone sort of followed and I picked up on after a while. And, and you know, the types of questions that were being asked and the types of information that was being shared was uh, really, really big on like, trust and transparency, which is Salesforce's kind of value. And it helped a lot, man. Um, also, so there's like a way the to do this. Yeah. small, right? So I spent, a, I, I back channeled, I have at least six people that knew people on the management team who worked at the company who could yeah. say, and who knew me, who could say, yeah, these are, these are of your tribe, Danielle, you'll do well here. You'll fit in well here. When you're I'm really glad you said that. When you're coming into it, I, I was going to say, yeah, go ahead, Pedro. Sorry, real quick before we move on, Andy, real quick, because what 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 Danielle just said is so important. I can't tell you how many times a headhunter has reached out to me or a recruiter has reached out to me about a job at a company that I'm familiar with, don't know a lot about, and I just put the word out into one of our chat threads or with some folks and just get a sense of what's going on over there, and I get the signal of they've hired you know, six people in that role in the last three years, you, you need to run away or no, that you definitely want to follow up there. These are really strong people, a really strong company, whatever it is. So totally agree with you, Danielle. And that's a really good insight, which is anytime I'm interested in anything, 
I just reach out to the gang and and see what people think. That's so I think the best a related, I have a get. related question to that. Both of you came into situations where you'd have teams already in place, and so in your hiring process, like, do you meet with the team before the offer, or do you wait? Because I actually had an offer when I was considering Alice. I had an offer with a company that had an existing team. I chose to not meet them while I was considering the offer. That was my choice, and I and I often go back and think about whether that was the right choice or not. I don't know. Uh, in both of the two cases where I inherited a team, I did not meet with them in advance. I think that was largely driven by the company's decision instead of mine. Um, and uh, and in both of the situations, I've done a mix of um, promoting and investing in books that have been there for a long time and hiring in from the outside. And, you know, in the two times I've done this, I'd be super interested in in how you guys have done it. It's always hard. That first year is always tough. Um, And, uh, but you get through it and you have the ability to really put your mark on a very strong team of people who are ready to move forward in a new and exciting direction. I think that's spot on. Look, I, I joined Meta and I I replaced someone who moved elsewhere throughout the company. It was really well liked and been here a long time. It's hard. Okay. It's hard to replace someone that is sort of like institutionalized in the organization and a well-known entity and trusted by the people who now report to me. I did have some advantage. Like Anjali, who's been on the, on the podcast, uh, is one of my direct reports. And like I knew her from way before and she's one of the reasons i came here because i know her to be brilliant and smart and she's proven that since i've joined time and time again um but another uh a colleague of mine andrew howard who's been on the podcast too he reports to me as well i didn't know him at all and so i asked to meet him i, I didn't i didn't need to meet everyone that was going to be in the organization but i felt like the two most senior people on the team who i'm sure could do my job well i was sure could do my job and now i'm certain can um, I wanted to meet and talk to and make sure we vibed and gelled and we did and it, and it worked out pretty good. Yeah, I think as I look back on it, you know, maybe maybe if I if I am presented with that opportunity again, I'll I'll reconsider, you know, how to approach that. But um, I, so Daniel, um, a, a different maybe a different topic and different question, and actually this is for both of you because you're both similar in this way. Um, I'd like to think I am too, but but. Um, when I noticed that, you know, Danielle first, like when you think about being a GC, think about being a lawyer, you think about it at a very strategic level and you pick it apart. You like, you pick apart things. So for instance, one example would be, you know, we did a, we did a webinar thing with our mutual friend, Tim. Perilla from Link Squares, where we were talking about our brand as GC, and you said something about, well, I look at it like, what do you want to be known for? And I've always like, that's the type of thinking that I'm interested in. You know, like we can all talk about like specific instances and and war stories and whatnot, but I, I'm interested in how you clear both of you, how you clear the decks to have that kind of higher level thinking, like even if it's as simple as like, are you going for a run? Are you, you know, having a glass of wine and looking at the sunset? How do you do that? Uh, it's a great question. 
it's a, first of all, it's a constant struggle um, because, you know, I'm looking at a three page long to do list and uh, I'm going through it right now. I've got to clean it up so I can get some time to think. And and also at, at this phase in my career, I'm not willing to get rid of all of the work. You know, I don't do the same amount of legal work I did 10 years ago or even five years ago, but I'm not willing to just manage and just set strategy and check in to make sure everybody's aligned to it and delivering. I also want to get my hands dirty. And um, keeping that balance is tough. So what do I do? I... Um, I, I probably do priority setting meetings quarterly and they're ugly. I have, I have an, you know, an inner circle of folks, many of which have been traveling with me for many years through the companies I've been with. And they're not scared of what my beautiful mind looks like when I start to get overwhelmed in the details. But if you think about the work that comes to us, there is covering the body of work that you were hired to cover. Legal work, you know, uh, governance stuff, the commercial stuff, maybe the compliance stuff, maybe the privacy, whatever it is that you have to cover. Stuff nobody but you and your team really understands that you do every day. Then there's the work that comes to you every single day that you didn't plan for. Everybody else who's calling you and pulling you in a 12 different directions. And what I'm starting to learn is that's becoming more and more of my time. Um, these cross-functional uh, peers of mine that want sometimes 50 or more percent of my day that I haven't built into my week schedule well, and I need to get better at that. And then the third is, just like you said, what do I want to be known for? And when I think about how to answer that question, I think about, What's the next job I want? So recently, they're recruiting for the new Starbucks GC. I, I don't want the Starbucks GC job. Plus, I'm not qualified, but that's my point. They need somebody who's entrenched in union law, union politics, you know. And so what kind of job would I be great at? Um, who would take me seriously for it? And what would make me happy? And that's how I think about answering that question. And I want to make sure that I am gravitating towards that and practicing those skills and getting better at the place that I'm currently at. So, you know, just, just to ground it in fact, for me, taking, um, transitioning business models from software, one-time perpetual deals to recurring revenue is something I've now done three times. And I really like it. And one of the reasons I like it so much is because it touches go to market. It touches product. It touches um, commercial terms. It, it sort of is a cross-functional team's, you know, uh, work that has to get done. And if you don't know how to do it, it'll take you at least five times or more as long to figure it out. But when you've done it a couple times, it's just a, it's, it's great to be one of the leaders to transition that business model. I really enjoy that. And I think there's a, a ton of software companies that need to make that transition in the next decade plus. That's a really robust answer. I'm going to not do as well, but <laughs> I, I'll say this, like I've spent the last couple of years really focusing on 
uncovering and creating space for the parts of me that are more than work. Mm -hmm. I am 41 years old and I've spent the last 21 years more. I've been working since I was 14 years old, but I spent the last 21 years grinding and constantly preparing myself for what's next. And, you know, that old refrain, you reap what you sow, like sometimes you got to reap because I don't know, like I can't keep postponing the reap. What I mean by that, though, is not that I'm lazy and trying to work less, but like finding the balance and space for me to follow the pursuits that are in my heart, which are not work related, is really important. Now, how do I do that with a job as tricky as mine is violently robust time management. Like when I'm working, I'm there. That's what's happening. I'm super focused. Um, and, and when I'm not, it's the same thing. Uh, and, and I just shut it down and I try to instill that in my team as much as possible, which is, you know, be on when you're on and be all the way on and then be all the way off. And if you can do that, I think you can meet, you know, you can hit those checklists. Um, if you're prioritizing vigorously, uh, you can, you know, your checklist should get smaller and, and then you'll have time for all these other things. I mean, I think we need to spend a minute talking about what you just said, Pedro, because, um, you know, companies that have unlimited vacation time and it yeah, sounds yeah, really cool. And frankly, I don't want to be logging in my vacation days. I don't enjoy that. I do think that you end up taking less vacation days when you have an unlimited vacation day policy. And I think the same is sort of true of this new remote world. Um, I feel like I'm working a lot more because I'm home. So it's very easy for me to bleed into dinner time or to get started super early because there isn't a break with a commute where I, I have to plan that. And so finding time for balance so that I can be healthy, you know, in body and mind so that I can think um, is, is, is becoming more and more important to me. I don't do a good job of it at all, but I'll, I'll give you some really silly examples of, of what I'm trying to do. Uh, the first is, do, you, do either of you drink coffee, caffeinated coffee in the morning? Yep. Yeah. I'm Cuban. So I have to. It's law. I have a, I have a, <laughs> like my husband would say, like, Daniel, everybody is this way. But I, when I have a cup of coffee every morning for a week, caffeinated coffee, I have this issue where in the morning, I am so persuasive to myself to stay in bed for an extra 30, 45, an hour that the whole day spends in catch-up mode. When I break myself of that caffeine habit, I could be up at 6.30 and I'm like ready for the day and the birds are chirping and I'm going to go get them. But there's something about me and caffeine in the morning that I, I cannot seem to, that those small minutes where I have to get that coffee it, it, it kind of, it, it cuts out an hour plus to my day and the mornings are where I need to spend my personal time. I have to work out. I have to go for a walk. You know, I have to read the news. And if none of that happens, the rest of my day, I'm treading water. We're so exactly you, the same. We're really? not on the caffeine tip. I love caffeine and that doesn't affect me. But if I, one of the biggest benefits of working from home for me and why I am so loyal to it and I've been doing it a long time is it let me take ownership of my morning in a non-stressful way. Like I'm I'm not operating against a timeline where I have to get in the car because there's traffic. I don't have to do any of that. I wake up early and I do my thing. I read my book. I hang out with my dog. I call like my grandmother. I, I do the things. And then I sit down at, you know, eight, 45 or whatever and get to work and I just feel like 
positive. If I don't do that, if I wake up late, if I'm sick, if, if I have an early call, if I'm traveling, everything sort of gets murky and confusing to me. I, we're exactly the same. Now. I, I completely so, agree with this. So like I walk my kids to school, school's right up the hill. And on the walk back, on the walk back, I'm starting to like, all right, like, cause it's fun to walk them. And I'm, I'm in kid, you know, I'm in dad mode when I'm walking them to school. And then when I'm walking back, I can start to like, take that time. It's eight 20. I know like there really aren't hardcore demands of me until nine. I mean, sometimes I have an eight 30, but typically, you know, people are easing in. And so I've got a built in 40 minutes and I'll have some coffee. I'll like, I'll do what, what needs to be done. And that like that runway into the day is super important. And it does allow me sometimes on that walk or I'll extend the walk a little bit. And it's like, what do I need to think about that is up here? You know, not necessarily like we got to do X and I'm with you, Daniel. I don't want to be too removed from work. Like I don't want to be so far removed from a customer deal that I don't know what we agree to or what we don't agree to. So I, I dip in and out of those things as much as I can, but that time to zero in on what's the company strategy that I need to be ensuring that we are working in service of at the, at the highest possible level. I do think like, whether it's a morning or, or you bake it in somewhere else in your day, I think it's really consistent. Well, and you read I think it makes us better at our jobs, right? Big tech CEOs like like Jeff Bezos wrote about the fact that I don't think he had a meeting after three. He just knew he wasn't good in the afternoon. And he I think that was when he did his personal stuff. It's it's hard to be you you use the word vigorous, like vigorously protective of that time, but I am finding more and more that if I don't have it, I I'm scattered. I, I I'm not a good teammate. I'm not a good manager. And now the trick is doing it for myself consistently and coaching my team to do it for themselves. That's a big one. Yeah, and, and there's going to create it, it, it like people's rhythms are not always super aligned and that's where you have to be creative. Okay. Like if I'm a soup, I'm not a super morning person. Like I ramp up slowly, but there's people on my team. Well, first of all, there's people on my team that are in France. So like it's their afternoon. If I want to talk to them, I've got to create some flexibility, right? Um, uh, a, a, as a as a colleague. And so there's always like you gotta be flexible enough to say, okay, well, every once in a while I've gotta, you know, do it a different way. But I agree with you, like creating expectations around your time is the best way to protect your productivity during the time that you're sharing with others or with work. Um, but also maintain your sanity. Like there's enough work. I, it, I, I'm sure you guys are the same. There's enough work at my corporation for me to work 24 hours a day. There's enough work. I could just be working 24 hours a day, do nothing else. No doubt about it. I think the same goes for every single person on my team based on what they do. Like they could just work 24 hours a day. That's not what we get paid to do though. And like understanding the bargain that you make with your employer is important. And I don't give my employer my life. That's not the deal. Yeah, that okay. So something you just said leads me to think of um, something I'm working on right now, which is that I, you know, Andy, you and I were talking um, a while back about how the role of the GC is changing, or how the role of any sort of leadership position in legal is changing. And I'm working on this idea that, except for the CEO and CFO, it's the legal leaders that have access to see all the moving pieces in the organization. Right. The CROs and the heads of engineering and the heads of marketing, they have like 
they have a broader view. They have a broad view, but like they're very narrowly focused on what they're trying to accomplish. They're moving their part of the machine, but we are so spread across supporting all of it that we have an opportunity to see all of it. As a result, I think that it's, I am seeing all over the place with a bunch of my colleagues, there's so much chum in the water. There's so much noise. And I think it's critical to focus the entire organization's energies on achieving the company's goals. And the company's goals should be five or less for a year. And people generate projects and work. And to your point, Pedro, none of you could work 24 hours a day, but none of that actually matters. What matters is, are you doing the work in support of those goals? And I think legal leaders have a unique vantage point to help a company stay on track on, on achieving those goals. Agree with you. Like figure out what work advances the goals, then figure out what work has the most impact on those goals. And like, that's a priority hierarchy. And then when you get to that list, then figure out whether you have the talent to address the work that highly impacts the goals. And what I mean by talent is I mean people. Um, and, and then assign those people to those tasks. Like that is the way that you like sort of can like shrink down what people are working on to manageable things that have the highest impact. And I, I try to think about it that way all the time. Sometimes that means yeah, so you're going to do some high impact. Yeah. yeah. So, so here's an example, like two things that have happened to me recently. Business would like to open up an office in, you know, uh, somewhere in North Africa, right? They want to put boots on the ground. Or another example, a big customer wants us to sign up for their ESG platform and answer 700,000 questions because, you know, they're supporting this ESG platform and everybody's, you know, grappling to see who's going to emerge as the leader in ESG. You could just, you know, drown in work like that. But you've got to take a step back. And as the legal leader, it's not, you know, it's not my responsibility to say yes or no, but I do find it to be my responsibility to say, okay, hold on. What were the goals that we wanted to achieve this year? And are these two in support of those goals? And the answer can't always be, well, we'll get more money if we do these things. That, that doesn't work. It has to be a little bit more thought out. Is that why we're seeing more legal leaders or seeing the function of legal expand. Like, I think it's more and more common to see that head of legal, because uh, you touch so many different areas of the business. Are we, are we as policy, legal, compliance, HR, are we best set up, or rather are we one of the um, functions that maybe is better set up to sort of one day emerge with growth out of the role expansion. So I, I, this, you know, you and I have talked about this for a couple of years. I completely believe that. I think that the legal position on an executive team has fallen behind in a public perception that we can grow into more or a broader role. I'll just give you an example the head of HR 10 years ago was making sure people got paid on time and their insurance cards worked at their doctor's offices. And today they're chief culture officers. They're building and recruiting teams. They're, 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 they're making sure that talent stays and doesn't leave. I mean, they're oftentimes at the left hands of the CEO. That role's changed dramatically. Um, so I do see a sea change in the GC role. It's happening you know, like everything, it's happening much slower than I would like, but it takes 
all, it takes the GCs that are coming up now and the legal leaders and the teams that are expanding now to keep leaning into that. And it, does that bleed into interactions with the board for you? And you're also on a board now, which is something new and, and interesting for you too. So like you see the other side of that yeah. now. It does. Um, it does. I, I spend a lot of my time interacting with my board currently. I view my job as to make them uh, being a board member of, of any company, whether it's public or private, is a serious undertaking. Um, no, you're sort of at the front lines for getting sued if a shareholder is unhappy. And all the board members that I've worked with at three companies take that job very seriously. And they want to be educated and they want to do a great job. And, um, and so I, I spend a lot of time supporting them and I really enjoy it. Sitting on a board now gives me a completely different vantage point. And it's at times very bizarre. Um, I, I now better appreciate board members who are able to influence in a way that is supportive of management because by the time management is presenting at a board meeting, and I know this from firsthand experience, you're nervous. You're nervous. You, you want the board to be happy with your performance and inspired by your plans. So, you know, you get four times a year to show up and make comments. Even if it's constructive, it, it can be wildly demotivating if that's the only opportunity you have to speak to management. That doesn't mean you shouldn't make constructive comments, but figuring out how to do that, I think, is an art. Uh, and I'm le- And I'm learning that. Yeah. And acknowledging the work that went into it ahead of that and the thought that went into it ahead of that. Um, so it's, it's, it's a good point. But there's also like a duty to be direct too, right? Yeah. Like, hey, this is not the direction. I think like it's, it's about, you're right. It's art. And like, you want to be respectful and polite and, um, uh, and acknowledge work contribution and, um, intention. Uh, but I think, there is a risk there to being too gentle and not saying, Hey, like you just need to pivot left. Okay. You need to make a hard left turn here. There you guys are going in the wrong direction. And I see like a lot of diplomacy sometimes, um, sort of shrouded as like, or excuse me, sort of shrouding, uh, like clear clarity. And that worries me. And I, and I don't just mean where I work. I, I, I mean, on like nonprofit boards that I'm part of, or like non-work related organizations that I'm part of. Nobody wants to be perceived as rude or mean, and that makes sense. And nobody should be rude or mean. Um, but it's not rude to say, hey, I don't agree with this. Uh, you need to go and do this other thing. Um, I, and like, I don't know. It's it's finesse. It's art. You're right. I completely and, agree with you. Uh, and I think the trick is finding out how to do that. You know, at Conval, uh, my CEO meets with the board in private without anybody there. And um, I know those conversations are intense. I mean, I think he goes in and he says, here's everything that I, I, I think we can do better. Here's everything I'm really proud of. But that doesn't happen in front of management. I think they give him a lot of feedback um, privately. And on the board that I'm sitting at of this legal tech company, um, it's the same. We give a lot of candid feedback directly to the CEO. There's, there are relationships that were built there carefully over years that we wouldn't say perhaps so directly to his head of 
product or as head of, you know, whatever. Although Tim Perillo, who's the friend that Andy mentions, is um, part of that company. And, you know, I'd call him up any day and say, WTF is this? Right. <laughs> Not that that's ever happened because Tim's amazing. <laughs> what does WTF stand for? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Uh, all right. Well, we could spend another hour on the uh, exec session. So maybe that's another another uh, conversation for another day. But Danielle, thank you so much for joining us for we solved our audio issues and we got this done. So um, really appreciate it. Uh, great conversation as always. Thanks for hanging out with us, friend. Yeah, you guys are the best. I love what you're doing. And um, I love that you I, I really think you're moving uh, the general counsel role forward by giving people the opportunity to share their thoughts and giving all of us an opportunity to hear directly from legal leaders and their journeys. I think it's making all of us better. It's rising tide lifts all boats. So thanks for what you do. Mm-hmm.